Welcome on in, everybody, to Studio 2. Hello, I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I am Matt Gillum in for Cherry Gregg. Today on the show, it's a wonderful topic, holiday movies. Why do studios, or the Hallmark Channel, uh, keep churning them out? What makes a good one? And why do we revisit some of the same ones each and every year? We're going to talk to an actual Christmas movie expert. Yes, this is this is a field of expertise, and we want to hear from you about this. This guy's actually, he's written a book about it. Books, he's written he's, the books. He's, about, written, he's written the book, and also, like, he's got a track record going back a decade. There are articles published by him years ago <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to this. Someone who has dedicated this much time to the topic of Christmas movies. Today on the show, we don't want any Grinch energy, we don't want any Scrooge energy, but we would invite you to make the case for your favorite holiday film, or maybe you can talk about your, your holiday movie traditions. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. You can also email us, studio2 at org. Later in the show, speaking of Christmas-themed things, we're going to talk to Philadelphia Eagle Connor Barwin, who can now call himself executive producer of a chart-topping Christmas album. Another yes, really, this is a thing, Matt Gillum, and we're going to talk to him later. Wait a minute, football player and now record producer. Record producer extraordinaire, I would say. Uh, And and apparently jack-of-all-trades, I'm hearing. A renaissance man. We will find out about that later on. Coming up in just a few minutes, Susan Phillips is going to join us from WHYY's Climate Desk to preview COP28. But first, let's uh, let's take a look at some things happening around the region. Uh, Start today. us off, Matt. All right. Uh, the Philadelphia City Council, they are discussing the ski mask ban as we speak right now. It's expected to pass. Now, this legislation, uh, it comes from Councilmember Anthony Phillips. He was first introduced over the summer as a way to try to cut back crime and make it easier for police to investigate and ID suspects. Uh, ski masks and balaclava ban would prohibit coverings that conceal the face from public places like schools, recreation centers, uh, and and mass transit. But it it's it's got some big fines on it, doesn't it? Like we're talking some serious money mm-hmm. if you get slapped with this. Yep, uh, two hundred fifty dollars to two thousand dollars. Again, if this passes, not surprisingly, uh, civil libertarians, First Amendment advocates have raised some red flags here. There also isn't, from what I have seen any evidence that something like this actually reduces crime you see people make the a b connection of people do crime while wearing this thing it obscures their face therefore if we they can't wear it um but so far there is not really any like rigorous evidence to suggest that this works but it's a sign of the times matt i mean it's the people want people are grasping for solutions people want something done. they want something done when it comes to crime the new mayor certainly is hitting that message hard and this bill is part of that wave. That's the way I. That's the way I see it. But I mean, it, it just reminds me, sort of, you know, two years ago we were go we were going into banks, we were going into stores wearing masks, and it right. was sort of surreal. But we were all doing it, and now they're banning this form of mask. And yep. I, I also don't think that you know, I, I don't personally have a balaclava that I just pull out when it's cold. <laughs> well, you're not used to the cold weather at all. You probably you, you would in, until this winter. You had no reason to own a balaclava. When I saw it snowing on Tuesday, <laughs> I had many thoughts. You were dismayed. We were, that's a topic for another time. Um, we also want to update you on the controversy at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Jordan Levy of Billy Penn has a really comprehensive explainer up right now at that website, billypen.com. Um, you might have seen bits and pieces of this story over the last few months. 
The tension actually started on campus before the Israel-Hamas war broke out. There was a couple of anti-Semitic incidents on campus in September. After that, there was a Palestinian writers' conference and cultural festival that sparked some backlash, which prompted the university to distance itself from that event. Then some major donors uh, threatened to pull or pulled their support because they didn't feel Penn denounced anti-Semitism strongly enough. The latest now is that President Liz McGill will be testifying on Capitol Hill next week about all of this. And And she's going up there with some other university presidents as well. Other university presidents as well. Congress is interested. Um, There was also an incident where the administration blocked a campus screening of a film that is critical of Israel, which then in turn prompted a staff member to resign. So it's it seems like it's something new every day. And like I said, Matt, this has been going on for months and it shows absolutely no sign of abating. No, that screening happened this week and and there's just been more fallout. And I mean, I think I think really the only word that describes the situation is quagmire. It, It is it is seemingly no win. Either either side has points. Either side will will make their point, and the other side will shoot it down. There is there is there's no right answer here, and it's very tough to navigate. And I mean, really, the only thing we can say is keep watching. Yeah, we will keep watching. And like you said, this is happening in campuses all across the country. Columbia University, in particular, um, Harvard as well. So it's it, the fact that it has gotten to Capitol Hill. Yeah. tells you that there is a lot percolating here. Um, let's get to our final news roundup story of this inaugural Matt Gillum show. <laughs> Come on, take it away, Matt. All right. Well, we are going to be talking about holiday movies, but uh, this weekend is going to be another holiday of sorts. It's the anniversary of a film we are very familiar with, especially in Philadelphia. It really don't matter if I lose this fight. It really don't matter if this guy opens my head either. Because all I want to do is go to distance. Was that Bugs Bunny? <laughs> Yeah, yes, it is. Oh. <laughs> uh, that's right. It's Rocky and Sunday, oh, it's Rocky. December 3rd. That is the 47th anniversary of the first Rocky movie. It won the Oscar for Best Picture and spawned a bunch of sequels. And I'm really surprised you just didn't go with the traditional Adrian. Yo, I'm, Adrian. I'm not going to do it. Well, this is Philadelphia, Matt. You can't go with you cannot go with the, the obvious here when it comes to Rocky. You got to go the, the, the deeper the Rocky, Rocky deep cuts. cuts. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, this is a, a citywide Rocky day. It's a holiday. Sunday, December 3rd. I'm not he's, making this He's going to be here. He's, he's coming. Sly is going to be here. Um, he'll be next to the Art Museum steps to promote. I haven't seen this yet with my own two eyes. I've only seen the pictures. I can't believe this really exists. There is a Rocky shop now, a brick and mortar shop that sells licensed Rocky merch right there at the foot of the Art Museum steps. So you got your your classic timeless pieces of art. Mm-hmm. Up there in the mm-hmm. museum, and then you've got this little pop-up uh, shop selling, I guess, boxing robes and shirts and stuff like that. This is a real thing that I guess is going to be there moving forward. Every time, every time I will go and walk by and I see the statue and I see the extremely long line mm-hmm. for the statue and I see the guys, people there, like, doing mm-hmm. the pose and, like, sort of, you know, fisticuffing. It blows my mind. But thank goodness now, now they can like go pay a lot of money for some some flag themed boxing <laughs> shorts and stand by the statue wearing this. It's going to make the pictures so much better. Well, Matt, I am I am I don't like self-promotion, but 
you know, someone could point out that a, a certain public radio station with uh, begins with WH and ends with Y did do a podcast about that statue that you can download wherever it's you get your pods. Called the statue, actually. Is it really? My Thank goodness, you for filling look at me that. in. <laughs> uh, and I just want to I just want to point out before we move on. Uh, the Philadelphia Visitor Center Corporation estimates that the museum steps and the Rocky statue gets around four million visitors a year. That seems high to me. If you do the math on that, I, I've tried to do the math on that before. It seems high. But, hey, it's their estimate. I have no contravening evidence. It just seems high. Four million. If you actually, like, divide that by 365 and think about <laughs> the amount of foot traffic, whatever. We're so not doing math topic on Topic for another day. Let's move on to our Newsmaker interview. Um, the United Nations COP28 Climate Summit begins today in Dubai. Delegates from nearly 200 countries are coming together to set goals and negotiate plans for addressing the climate crisis. But... Year to year, nations miss their targets, leaving people to question the effectiveness of the summit. Here to explain COP28, what we're keeping an eye on, and some of the controversy already surrounding it, is Susan Phillips. She's the senior reporter and editor for WHYY News' Climate Desk. Susan, welcome back to Studio 2. Thank you, Javi. All right. Well, let's let's dive right in. I mean, COP22, it's getting underway right now, but as it gets underway, there's a cloud over it. Can you set the table with really what uh, what what people are saying as we go into this big this big conference. Yeah, sure. So even before um, well, let me just give the news of the day, which was that yesterday the BBC and the Center for Climate Reporting got a hold of documents detailing how uh, Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, who is the person who's been selected to run the COP, he also runs the United Arab Emirates oil company. Hmm. Um, so this was controversial. For multiple reasons. For multiple reasons. Right. Why is why is a head of a corporation, especially an oil executive, leading the cop? But now, um, to make matters worse, um, the BBC and the Center for Climate Reporting got a hold of documents detailing how he was going to use the cop to make oil and gas deals on the side. So, yeah, that's that's created a bit of an uproar. What's let's assume that we can work past that. What is the what are sort of the headline goals of this particular summit? Sure. So this one is the quote unquote global stock take. Right. So what they're doing here is if you remember back in 2015, that was the Paris uh, that was where the summit was in Paris and they became it, it, they got a uh, very highlighted, uh, celebrated breakthrough um, where the country signed a treaty to cut carbon emissions um, enough to keep global warming below, it was originally two degrees C, and now they're pushing for one and a half degrees C. Um, And this is the first time they're taking stock of how successful, and obviously they haven't been very successful at all, right? They've made some uh, improvements, but there's a lot to go. There's a lot of uh, um, there's a lot to go. <laughs> there's just a lot more to do to cut the carbon emissions. And also, last year when it was in Egypt, there was a big focus on climate finance, right, or what they call loss and damage. So the poorer countries um, that have not contributed to this problem as much as we have here in the West, the richer com- countries are the ones that have contributed the most greenhouse gas emissions. And yet the poorer countries are suffering the most from that. So the idea is that 
these wealthier nations uh, need to pay or give money to these poorer countries to help them deal with climate change. So that's going to be a big conversation at this COP Sort of well. continuing from the last one into this one. Exactly. Interesting. Well, can we can we read into who is and isn't going? King Charles is there. Rishi Sunak, the prime minister of the UK, is there. We found out just a few days ago, or perhaps to, was it yesterday, that Kamala Harris is going, but President Biden isn't. I don't think President Xi is making an appearance. What does that say when some of the, the world's biggest leaders are skipping it and some are going. What should we make of that? Um, you know, I, I, I'm not really sure. I, I think at the end of the day, what happens is when those big leaders go in the first couple days, December 1st and 2nd, it's sort of like, okay, here's some pageantry, blah, blah, blah. You know, but after they leave, there's a lot that happens amongst each country's negotiators. So that's kind of where the deals are hashed out. Um and it'll be interesting this year to see. I mean, there are, you know, more than 70,000 delegates this time around. Hmm. Um, which is, is, that's a high number? It's that's a high a, that's number. A city. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, it, it keeps growing. Hmm. And, and the other thing that's happening this time for the first time ever is there is a summit for what they call, um, you know, basically those who are... They call it subnational. But what it means is people like cities, right? Mm. Like mayors of cities and towns. And so those are actually kind of important people to take um, to take stock of and to listen to, because when it comes to actually doing the work to cut the carbon emissions, that all happens on a local level. So for the first time, these global high level talks are going to be taking into account the perspective and the experiences of those who actually put these policies in place. Can we draw back just a bit from COP and just generally, this is a global problem. It it requires cooperative solutions. Global cooperation around climate action. Do you feel like it's stable? It's improving? It's declining? How do you assess that more generally? Yeah, I don't... (laughs) It's a big question. It's a big question. I'm trying to get a sense of the temperature here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the only thing I can really say is, you know, I've been covering climate for over 10 years now. And when I started, like, nobody was covering it. Now everybody is covering it. Um, There's stories. There's breaking news every single day on my beat. Um, You know, like, you know. For instance, Delaware just finalized its electric vehicle um, plans. So it's just every day there's something. There's offshore wind. There's hydrogen hub. Um, You know, at the same time, you know, Philadelphia itself or this region has really taken a climate hit this year. Right. We've had deadly floods in Bucks County. We've had um, smoke from forest fires drifting down from Canada. I mean, Mm. that was directly associated with climate change. So, you know. There's a lot to do. There's a lot happening. People are doing a lot. I don't want people to get depressed. People yeah. are getting it finally. I like that as a, as a sign-off message from Susan Phillips, senior reporter and editor from the uh, WHYY News Climate Desk. Thank you so much for your time, Susan. You're welcome. Thank you. And coming up for us, we'll have a look at the best holiday movies we want to hear from you. Give us a call, 888-477-9499. Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? You're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. You really are a heel. You're a 
lights, camera, studio two. Welcome back. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Matt Gillum in for Cherry Gregg. Nothing like some Grinch music to get us into this segment about Christmas movies. That's right. There's no escaping them. Uh, at this time of year, whether you're a fan or not, I mean, even before Thanksgiving, TV channels, the streamers, they're blanketed with Christmas titles. Uh, I can name them for almost an endless amount of time, but I'll <laughs> save you and just give you some of the top tier. It's a Wonderful Life, A Christmas Carol, Home Alone, Elf, Bad Santa, Die Hard. There's an there's a growing controversy over Batman Returns. We were talking about that before the show. I haven't seen Batman Returns, so I'll have to get briefed a little bit more on what the controversy is. It is incredible, Matt, just how many Christmas movies there are, and so many of us love watching the same ones over and over again, year after year. Do you do that with any of these movies, Matt? I am I am I am a very simple Christmas movie man. I love I love it's a, I love a Christmas story. We watch it every, every year. Every year. Once a year. It, it, I, I'm good with one viewing a year. <laughs> That's just me, because otherwise it can be a little much. But I do enjoy and appreciate, and I go back to it every time. You got to see Ralphie. You got to see the, the Red Rider BB gun. Tongue, tongue on the pole, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, we have brought in, Matt, a holiday movie expert to talk about the appeal of movies like but, that one. What ingredients make a perfect Christmas film? And we want to debate some of the best and the worst. Alonzo Duraldi is a critic with The Film Verdict and the author of Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. Welcome to the program, Alonzo. Are you with us there? Uh, yes. Can you not hear me? There yeah, we is. can hear you now. Thank you okay, so much for coming hurrah. on. Hurrah. <laughs> no bah humbugs here. Thanks for coming on, Alonzo. Uh, and by the way, folks, uh, if you have a favorite movie you watch to get into the holiday spirit, or maybe you hate holiday films, a little contrarian take, give us a call, (laughs) 888-477-9499, or email studio2 at whyy.org. Well, I mean, Alonzo, we were were talking about a little bit earlier in the show just the the wondrousness of your resume. How did you become an expert on Christmas movies? Why did you decide to, uh, to do this? Well, you know, I think the secret is if you want to be the expert in anything, find a field that nobody else was particularly interested in being the expert in. Um, But for me specifically, uh, I've always loved movies and I've always loved Christmas. So I guess it was inevitable that my uh, that dark chocolate and peppermint were going to find their way into the same uh, container. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, I, I, uh, I love the holiday and I, part of what I love about the holiday is returning to those movies that, that have meaning and that, you know, you grew up with, but, um, in the same way that as an adult, I've gotten to expand my parameters of Christmas music beyond the five albums that my parents owned. Mm. Um, you know, I find there's a whole world of Christmas movies out there that maybe were not in my rotation before that, uh, that I can add in and I can check out and, and, it's everything from your very sort of traditional, you know, Santa or, you know, cozy family tales to things like Batman Returns, which you mentioned, or, you know, The Lion in Winter or uh, Metropolitan or Eyes Wide Shut or Less Than Zero. So, you know, I think the the parameters of a Christmas movie can be pretty broad and it will uh, contain just about any genre that's out there. We were talking about this in the intro uh, Alonzo, this idea that people will watch the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and that does seem, I don't want to say it's unique to, to Christmas or holiday films, but it seems like a particularly strong sort of thread through those types of movies. And I want to bring in a caller now from Philadelphia. This is Nikki. Uh, Nikki's husband apparently is obsessed with the genre, perhaps can relate to what I just described. Nikki, you are on Studio 2. What is your question or comment? Hi. Yeah, um, I... 
it's become like this total tradition in our family where everybody has their holiday favorites. We watch the same movies over again every year. My husband is addicted to Hallmark. He <laughs> has to watch a Hallmark movie every day from Thanksgiving. And every so day, Nikki. Every day. How does he maintain his sanity? <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. He calls himself Mr. Christmas. Um, it's, it's adorable. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's pretty nutty. But I have to say that I'm Jewish. But, I mean, I've always celebrated Christmas. But, um, but it, I've fallen into it, too, because I have to see... Um, Miracle on 34th Street mm, on the weekend of perfect. Thanksgiving. And then I have to see um, It's a Wonderful Life on Christmas Eve. Mm-hmm. And um, the first time our son ever watched it, it was a couple years ago when we had that storm on Christmas Eve. And it, it was like we were watching it like midnight. He's about to jump Ooh, off the bridge. And magical. all the power went out in our house. <gasps> oh, my so gosh. We never finished seeing it. And so, like, the next year came around, because you can't watch it after Christmas. Yeah, no, no, like, that would be forbidden. Right? Um, so then the next year came around, and my son's like, we've got to see it. Go <laughs> well, Nikki, I want to make sure we give uh, Lonzo a little time to respond. There's, like, 17 lovely comments there. Um, but uh, I guess I, I, my question for you, Alonzo, is what do you think is the appeal for folks like Nikki's husband? Like, what about Christmas movies just speaks to to our soul? Well, you know, I, I think that they are, they're certainly cozy and, and you know, the Hallmark movies specifically, I think, sort of serve the function of when you get a Christmas card that has a lovely winter scene on it and you look at it and you think, ah, oh, I'll probably never be in that sort of beautifully snowy forest, but it's nice to contemplate. And the Hallmark movie is sort of 90 minutes of that, you know, 90 minutes of a small town with a beautiful Christmas tree lighting and, you know, baking and caroling and things that you may or may not ever actually get to do yourself over the holiday season, but you get to have that sort of vicarious moment of it. Uh, And then as far as like revisiting the same stuff over and over again, I I think there's something about the, the season that kind of has this nostalgia baked into it. And so it's the one time of year you're going to hear, you know, Andy Williams on FM radio. It's the one time of year that you're going to dig the lights out of the attic and you're going to put the tree up and you're going to do the things that you do every year. You're going to make that, you know, cookie recipe that you don't do the rest of the year. And so I think movies kind of fit into that. You don't, like she said, you don't necessarily watch It's a Wonderful Life after Christmas Day, unless you're a lunatic like me and write books <laughs> about Christmas movies, in which case you watch that stuff all year round. Um, but, you know, you you the, 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 the calendar turns and you want it and you need it and you want to have it again. And then you put it away for 10 months and then, you know, the cycle begins anew. We're talking about about the, the the Hallmark movies specifically, and it's that that comfort, the nostalgia, the going to the small town. You know, a, a lady leaves the big city and decides to pursue her passion of making umbrellas made out of spun sugar. <laughs> Is that a real movie, or you just make that up off the top of your head? I mean, I made it up off the top of my head, but that's literally the intro to probably half the Hallmark movies. <laughs> correct me if I'm correct me, Alonzo, but um. Why that, that is a, the the traditional Hallmark movie. Yes, the last couple of years they have, thank goodness, tried to really mix up the 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 tropes. But yeah, you, you're you're onto something there. And and look, I'm I'm with Nikki's husband. I watch all forty of the new ones when they come out. It, it's an obsession. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it it it, it it's you, whether you're watching it actively, whether it's the thing you're paying the third most amount of attention to, because you're also addressing cards and folding laundry. Uh, those movies do provide, I think, a real sense of comfort well we're talking about the the traditional ones the 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 classics but we've got we've got a caller here who says that he's got a favorite movie uh uh, from tangerine i think Mm. 
Phil, you are on Studio Two. What do you have to add to the conversation? Hello. Uh, yes, Tangerine is my favorite Christmas movie. It gets rid of some of the saccharine parts of Christmas and is very real, very honest, and very edgy. Tell me about Tangerine. I've, I've not seen this film, Phil. It, it takes place on Christmas Day in L.A., and it, it takes place in the trans community. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Alonzo, are we seeing folks, uh, are we seeing sort of an expansion of what Christmas movies are? Um, because, you know, Phil ref- referred to that idea that there's there's saccharine um, and maybe even predictable. Um, but are we starting, to, you know, maybe over the last few decades, have we seen sort of growth in, in what a Christmas movie or what a holiday movie is? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, Die Hard was a real sort of, you know, mm. damn buster in that regard uh, in terms of it, it is absolutely a Christmas movie. And a lot of people have embraced it as such. And so, yeah, the, the when I wrote my book, you know, there's a chapter about horror movies. There's a chapter about like, uh, you know, crime dramas and action films. Uh, so, you know, like I said, a Christmas movie is, is, a, is, a, is a very wide tent. And so, a great deal of it is sentimental or, you know, cozy or romantic or comedic or whatever. But absolutely a movie like Tangerine is a Christmas movie. Absolutely a movie like uh, uh, The Lion in Winter is a Christmas movie. You know, the the, the Christmas setting is, I think, never accidental. Um, people are trying to say something about the human experience. They're trying to maybe contrast what is for some people a season of love and togetherness and happiness with maybe their characters being lonely or isolated or, you know, separated from society. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of different ways that, that you can tell Christmas stories and, and subsequently a lot of different ways you can watch Christmas movies. Well, I mean, while we're on the subject of other Christmas stories or Christmas tales, let's let's go and look at some of the 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 darker or the flip side of some of the uh, the Christmas movies that are out there. And uh, focus on on uh, this one at least a little bit. This is uh, this is music from Tim Burton's 1993 animated film, The Nightmare Before Christmas. Do we have that clip up? Let's take it away. So we've got we've got the nightmare before Christmas. Lock up Mr. Sandy Claus. Put him in a box. This from the the dark, twisted, wonderful mind of Tim Burton, which also gave us Batman Returns. Tell us about about this genre and niche of the Christmas phenomena. Well, you know, in talking about horror movies, I always say that, you know, nothing shows off blood splatter like a perfect sort of, you know, a white stretch of snow. Um, (laughs) That is true. uh, I think there is something that's sort of juxtapositional about Christmas is in a lot of ways in our culture, I think one of the sort of last kind of purely uh, uh, innocent and sweet uh, phenomena that's left, you know. And so if you have your horror movie or your action movie, your, 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 you know, devious crime drama unfolding against the backdrop of what we can generally consider to be, you know, an adorable family holiday. It just makes the difference that much more striking. Uh, Legend has it that Tim Burton wrote The Nightmare Before Christmas because he saw a window display where the Halloween uh, stuff was coming down and the the Christmas things were going up and seeing them next to each other uh, uh, gave him the idea 
but I, you know, I think that there is something about Christmas that sort of always loaned itself to these darker stories. Like I said, because it is a, a, a literally a season built around the idea of light, you know, lighting fires mm. or lighting trees or whatever it is to sort of stave off the long winter nights. Um, you know, darkness plays into that. And and there's, of course, the tradition of the Christmas ghost story, um, most famously exemplified by Charles Dickens. Mm. But there was uh, this thought for a long time that Christmas night was the night where the veil between our world and the world beyond was at its thinnest. And so that's why you know, there are so many ghost stories that revolve around, you know, the this specific holiday. And you talk about that idea of there being sort of magic or supernatural stuff going on in Christmas movies a lot. And sometimes it has that sort of darker feel, but sometimes it's got a, like a lighter feel, like, for instance, Elf, in which Will Ferrell plays Buddy, a human who thinks he's uh, a Santa's elf and leaves the North Pole in search of his real father. In the scene we're about to play, he realizes that a department store Santa is not the real one and confronts him. <laughs> uh, so uh, how old are you, son? Four. You're a big boy. What's your name? Paul. And uh, what can I oh, get you for Christmas? Don't tell him what you want. He's a liar. Let the kid talk. You disgust me. How can you live with yourself? Just cool it, Zippy. You sit on a throne of lies. Look, I'm not kidding. You're a fake. I'm a fake? Yes. How'd you like to be dead? Huh? <laughs> no, he's kidding. You stink. I think you're going to have a good Christmas, all right? You smell like beef and cheese. You don't smell like Santa. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> And Alonzo, <laughs> I love that scene, but I also love the fact that I feel like just as viewers, we're more willing to suspend disbelief when we approach a holiday movie. Uh, at least I, I feel that way. Why do you think that might be? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we're sort of raised with the idea of, of Santa Claus, you know, and and of the the the, the magic of the season. And, and so, yeah, I, I think that it is makes us a little more susceptible to things that we might find cloying or melodramatic or unbelievable uh, at other times of the year. Yeah. Uh, what I think also is so great about Christmas movies is that there's a, a more tangible sense of magic in that there's this notion that the the holiday itself can make people's lives better you know that 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 families who've had a rift can fix it because it's the holidays that people who've had some sort of long-standing disagreement can finally have that conversation finally have that resolution that fixes things because it's the holidays um you know the, the whole notion of of christmas carol and even it's a wonderful life and and i would argue home alone is that there are these redemption stories that allow people to discover their best selves at Christmas time. And, and ideally, you know, they're going to take that best self and carry it throughout the rest of the year. And there's something about the season that makes that happen. Well, I want to I want to ask something about about the movies and the Christmas music, because, I mean, these two are, are both intertwined, but also, in my mind, kind of different, because it seems like the Christmas movie canon, it's more open than the music canon. I mean, people are willing to make newer Christmas films part of their tradition, but they are they seem very unwilling to embrace new Christmas songs, except, of course, Mariah Carey. She is the exception. But why do you think that is? Why are people willing to invite the movies in and take and make that part of their life, but they, they refuse to sort of have anything outside of the musical canon as part of their Christmas? Yeah, I suspect it's the way that we take in different media, and there's something about the the sort of bed of music, especially now that people can 
curate their own playlists so easily with you know streaming platforms and and you know their their own music libraries it's not like you're physically putting on a record or popping in a cd or whatever um yeah and you're right there there really hasn't been anything to the extent of mariah carey's all i want for christmas is you in the last couple of decades that has hit in that way and we do get new christmas music and some of it does kind of sneak into you know rotation kelly clarkson's underneath the tree share is giving it a shot this year but i think with movies we take them in in different ways where either you know it's a it's a group thing and so maybe the one thing that everybody can agree on is something that's new and different or you are hunkering for something new and you you want to throw on something from the hallmark channel or you just want to have hallmark on 24 7 because they're going to be showing christmas movies 24 7 and it's just the wallpaper for your holiday experience but i think maybe music is something that we're more actively tied into mm. and again when the season comes around we know the things that we want to hear and we want to hear them again well we have to let you go here alonzo but i really appreciated the perspective that is alonzo Duraldi, the uh, chief u.s film critic for the film verdict and author of have yourself a movie little christmas thanks for joining us on studio two Thanks for having me. Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas to you as well. And I just want to read out a lot of folks sent in their favorites. Julia loves The Preacher's Wife. Um, Malika and Steve love Die Hard. Rebecca, Home for the Holidays. Rosie and Geraldine Trading Places. Jacob, Alice and Megan, Gremlins. Stan and Dion, A Christmas Story. Danielle, Carol, uh, JP, Home Alone. And two people, Luke and Eugene, submitted a movie called The Irony of Fate, and it's also called Enjoy Your Bath. It is a Soviet-era Christmas holiday-themed movie that apparently is a tradition in that part of the world. I will bookmark that. The Irony of Fate. I guess you need the subtitles. I bet that's going to be a really uplifting good one. (laughs) Yeah, you never know. You never know. Um, Well, we've got... Some more Christmas-themed stuff coming up. We're talking... The holidays are here at Studio 2. The holidays are here at Studio 2. We're going to keep on rolling a conversation with Connor Barwin, um, who is the executive producer of one of the biggest Christmas albums out there right now. And, oh, he used to play for the Philadelphia Eagles. Stay tuned for that conversation on Studio 2. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at pennmedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? It was Christmas Eve again And the drunk tank Welcome back to Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Aaron. And I'm Matt Gillum, in for Jerry Gregg. Now, I'm new to Philly, but I have been here long enough to figure out that this, this is a big sports town. How big is it? Well, a charity Christmas album released last year by three Eagles offensive linemen was so popular that tomorrow they are releasing a sequel. The latest project from Jason Kelsey, Lane Johnson, and Jordan Mailata is called a Philly Special Christmas Special, 
And Matt, one of its singles has already topped the iTunes charts. Uh, my mind is reeling. Now, a former standout defender for the Eagles, Connor Barwin, he's the executive producer. He's the head of the Make the World Better Foundation, which revamps Philly parks and playgrounds. And on top of that, Barwin has become something of a Philly renaissance man, popping up at indie music concerts, getting his MBA at Wharton, as one does, and uh, <laughs> zipping around town on his bike. Jerry and I uh, sat down with Connor recently to talk about life after football and, of course, how his unlikely turn as hit record producer came to be. All I want for Christmas is you. Jason's a musician. Mm-hmm. Uh, he plays guitar, sings a little bit. Jordan Malata is, is a real musician, yes, I guess. Yes. Like he, 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 he grew up singing, can play every instrument. And then Lane is, is had, had no sort of proper training, but Lane and Kelsey used to sit in their car after football games at the link, and people know how bad the traffic is after the link, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they would just sort of mess around and sing country songs. And then Kelsey loves Christmas music, so he used and he's been out there saying like he listens to Christmas music sometimes before a game because it just gets him in a good mood. So there was sort of all of that sort of in the background. The elements and are coming together. Yeah, yeah. This. And then yeah. so so there's this moment in the locker room where they're sort of having a conversation or somewhere it picked up. And I overheard Jason said, maybe one year or maybe one point we'll record a Christmas record. And I was like, well, why don't we do it now? And that's where this thing all, all how it all so started. So you're the get it done guy. Yeah, I think there's a little bit of that. I'm definitely sort of the guy that hears a good idea and tries to make sure it happens. I mean, Kelsey has is, is, is said this, and it's truly true. He is so creative uh, and so smart. Um, he's not sort of a organized, get-it-done guy. <laughs> and so, you had all these connections in the indie music world here in Philly, yeah, yeah. which is, which is int- how did you make those connections? Like, how do you know these people? How, how did you make the connections in this world that people don't often associate with each other? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, I... I initially started going to concert at Union Transfer a lot. Mm-hmm. And I met Sean Agnew, and we became friends. And I said to Sean, hey, let's, can, I, can I host concerts here to raise money for Philadelphia? And he was like, yeah, let's try and make it happen. And then when he saw that we were like, we were ma- I was matching, we were doubling the money we were actually raising and investing it directly in Philadelphia, that made a difference, you know what I mean? And so then he really got on board and helped push this. And I think that going about things that way and being really genuine and trying to do sort of the right thing consistently has just, people feel that. And I have to say, they sound pretty good. Well, they're re- they sound really they good. They sound really, really good. And one of the cool things, and we did the animated special, which um, came out uh, day after Thanksgiving. And what was interesting, you guys had Patty LaBelle. Yeah. How'd you get Miss Patty to participate? <laughs> Again, I think we're, we're trying to do, you know, this is, this is a charity record. That makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because of the credibility we built from year one, you know, she had confidence that this was a real thing. She wanted to be involved, and I can tell you, Patty is unfrickin' believable. <laughs> I mean, she truly. Like, like, take a moment and let me like tell you, she is the best human I've ever met. I mean, when she came to the Eagles facility, I started calling people like, "Hey, what do we need to do so Patty is like happy, and what does she need?" Like, I'm trying to, like, you know, she's a like a legend of a, of a music a singer and everybody I talked to was like 
kind of don't worry about it. Just be yourself, and she'll feel your energy, and she'll be all in. Your eyes outshine the town, yes they do. It was just really special to have her there and record music with Jordan and the group, but then to watch how she interacted with everybody uh, was really, really cool. So how do you explain the cultural phenomenon of this project? This is the second you know, iteration of it. But I, as I recall, when you came out with the first one, you sold more than you expected oh, yeah, yeah. to sell. Athlete music crossover projects can come off as a novelty. Sometimes they don't quite hit. Why has this one hit so well? Cherry said it earlier. I mean, they can sing. Yep. You know, I think when we all decided to do this, I remember the first conversation we had in, in, in my backyard was, all right, let's have fun, but let's take this serious and be really sort of proud of the, of the final product. And then we want to do something good with it. We're benefiting from being in Philadelphia where you have this sort of incredible music history, you have this incredible sort of sports history, and bringing those two communities together, they are sort of connected, but they're, you know, it's not maybe always done so literally with what mm-hmm. we've done. Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's sort of high times for, for Eagles fans right now. Yeah. Last year was quite a run. This year, knock on wood, things are going good, but that all helps sort of put good energy behind the record. My kids... Love it. Like yeah. people just love listening. It's Christmas music. Like yeah, it's fun. It like it makes you feel good. Yeah, you know, yeah. and some of these are just classic songs and we haven't talked about it, but one of the craziest things about the record this year, uh, and it's not out but it comes out on Friday, is Jason wrote his own song. Wow. So this this Hall of Fame football player, <laughs> yep. he just happened to like write a beautiful <laughs> Christmas song over the summer and the musicians put some, you know, beautiful music to it. Um, and I can't wait for everybody to hear it. Yeah. I want to zoom out a bit because Make the World Better Foundation was something you were already doing as a player. Yeah. And I've, I'm not, I, I love football, but I can't say I watch all the games. I got to admit that. You come from a football family. I come from a football family. Yeah. Exactly. And so I first saw you at the Ralph Brooks. Yeah. Yep. Um, you were there. You had your baby, I think, <laughs> some flip flops. And they were just sort of unveiling this new park your foundation sort of does that type of work. What is the philosophy? How do you, why, why start this foundation in Philly? Cause you're, yeah. you're not born here, but yeah, yeah. it's kind of like home now. Yeah. Philly's definitely home. So I grew up in Detroit, played at Cincinnati, then played four years in Houston. And you got to find your way in the NFL as a young player. So I sort of got, found my way, watched other players on the team do stuff in the community and figured out what I wanted to do. And then when I moved to Philly or signed to play in Philly in 2013, Howie gave me, you know, a decent sized contract and I said like I'm going to make this home and the way this, you know, team is investing in me, I'm going to try to do my part and sort of invest in the community. So I started Make the World Better Foundation, which is an acronym for my parents' name, Margaret Thomas William Barwin, but also an acronym for Make the World Better. And really it comes from my upbringing. My dad was a career city, he was a police officer, then a career city manager, which is, for people that know, is, you know, like a mayor, but a different political system. Uh, And then my mom was always involved in sort of politics and campaigns. It's actually how they met. And so growing up, my dad was just constantly talking about 
green space and parks and why they're important and like road diets and mass transportation and all this. so <laughs> i just like urbanist. yeah he, he really is yeah. he really is and he was he was ahead of his time and he's, he's he was very successful sort of on inner ring suburbs around detroit and he taught me and i learned this in, in football but again just sort of a general truth that to be successful you really have to sort of engage with the real stakeholders that are in that park and so at mtwb we've done four parks in Philadelphia. Uh, Vare Rec Center will be done uh, early next year. Over $30 million invested uh, in Philadelphia. But I'm proud to say every single one of them, we've taken the time to get to know the people that use that park Mm -hmm. and let them lead the design in what gets built there. And it's first of all just the right thing to do, but it's actually the most sustainable thing to do. Because when people feel involved and feel a part of the process, they really take care of it. And you build what they need and what they're going to use. And so that's the philosophy is really engage with the people that use the park. You know, I wish we could do it faster. It usually takes almost two years to sort of go in and get to know people in a community and then actually build stuff. But that two years is sort of a magical two years where it really also sort of strengthens uh, a neighborhood, which we've seen at sort of each of the neighborhoods that we've done projects at. I'm trying to put myself in the position of being a successful athlete transitioning to the next phase of life. And the thing that I think about is that when you've had a 10-year career in the NFL, that means you're the top 1% of the mm-hmm. top 1% mm-hmm. of people who've ever tried to play this sport. You're that good yeah. at what you've done in the first phase of your life. And what would be daunting to me would be confronting the possibility that I'm not going to be able to get back to that level at whatever I do next. I might be really good at it, but being that good at two things in one lifetime is really, really hard. Yeah. How do you think about that challenge? I, I try not to think about it in, in those terms. <laughs> Was uh, that too cynical? I don't no. know. <laughs> no, but th- that's the conversation that players have all the time. Like, what can I do where I'm the best in the world at? And that's why a lot of people don't have success because they think they can transition out of being the best and they automatically can go do it right away. Because yep. mm-hmm. that's what they know. That's what build. they've yeah. done. They've exactly. literally so, done that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I give, you know, Harry Roseman credit. Like when I took my first job with the Eagles, it was a, it was a very humbling experience. And I won't get into the details, <laughs> but I'll just say it was humbling um, from what I made and the hours I put in. But it taught me a lot and it sort of showed me like, hey, you're, you're not a pro athlete anymore. You know, you got to sort of learn. And what I, what I learned through that experience was, yes, you got to sort of start from the bottom again. But if you're talented, if you work hard, you can sort of move up quickly. Um, to me, it's all about finding opportunities where you have something to add and sort of connecting people together that when you bring it all together, you know, something sort of magical or beneficial can happen. Um, and that's where I'm sort of always trying to find opportunities. And we're getting close to wrapping up. But I, I had to ask you this because people see you as a pretty humble guy. You ride your bike. You weren't afraid to ride SEPTA just <laughs> on the train. You know, you, and you grew up in in around Detroit loving the Lions. Now that you work for the, the Eagles. Yeah, I don't love the Lions here, You don't love the Lions. Okay. That's done. That's, that's done. over and oh, done. Yeah, the childhood team just 
Kick to the curb. That's done. I I do think that's hard for the average person to understand. I do. Like if someone who grew up with the Eagles, maybe maybe it's easier when you're in the league. I don't. It's definitely easier when you're in the league, and things have things have really changed for me because the Lions are suddenly good. So now (laughs) I'm really like now I'm really like before when the Lions were like winning two or three games when I was playing. Like I, me and my wife were like, yeah, we really hope they win. But now I'm, you know, I'm I'm solely thinking about the NFC and who we're playing, and like I'm, you know, I am happy for Detroit that the team is doing better and I have a lot of family still there, but I'm definitely not rooting for the Lions. But before we wrap up, I just was hoping you could expand a little bit more on what, you know, someone from Detroit who spent some of their professional life in Houston found in the city of Philadelphia that made you say, this is my place. Well, let me also say, I sit, Houston's a great city, lived there four years. Cincinnati's a, a good city, went to college there four yeah. years. I also lived in LA and in New York City mm-hmm. uh, my last year's playing. But I wanna be in Philadelphia because I love this city. If you care about sports, this is the city that cares about sports. My wife, we've sort of made it, we, we've made it home. You know, when we started the foundation, we sort of put roots down. And then I, I think every, Philly has everything to offer, and there's so much potential in Philly. Like, if you think of where it's located, and you can tell my dad's an urbanist, where it's located, like, <laughs> in the north, where it's here. located in the northeast corridor, like, man, the opportunities are endless. And then the beach, like, everything. The airport is so close to downtown. Like, there's so much potential, and you, you match that with just the passion around the sports, and then, the you know, it's probably one of the top three music city. Every tour, everybody plays in Philadelphia. It's got everything I want right here. There you have it. The Philly endorsement. It's got everything you need, Matt. Um, that was a great conversation. We really enjoyed that. Um, today is Thursday, November 30th. My wife's birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, Happy Ro. birthday, Audie's wife. I love you. Um, tomorrow... December 1st is release date for a Philly special Christmas special, the album we talked about. And then on Monday, Connor and NFL star Chris Long will host team dinner at Stake 48 to benefit Make the World Better and the Chris Long Foundation. As we wrap things up here, our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. Joan Isabella is WHYY's audio general manager. From Studio 2 at WHYY in Philadelphia, which has a ringing endorsement, I'm Matt Gillum. (laughs) And I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. One of the songs on the new Eagles album is a riff on the song you're hearing now, Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. And we wanted to end the week with the original version because former Pogues frontman Shane McGowan died today. He was 65. I can see a better time when I